You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Michael Kane. No, I'm Michael Kane. Master Wayne? You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off! Listeners, since Kevin and I are not in front of any plates of food, we'll go ahead and stop our dueling Michael Caine impressions, our really bad dueling Michael Caine impressions. But that doesn't mean we don't have a treat for you on this episode of Seeing and Believing. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Michael Winterbottom's new film, The Trip to Greece, featuring the inimitable Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, or at least versions of Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. And after that, we look at what it means to be a good neighbor by discussing Andrew Ahn's new film, Driveways. You sure you don't want to give one more crack at the Michael Caine impression, Wade? (laughs) I, for one, don't want to watch the world burn, Kevin. (laughs) Stay tuned, listeners. We've got both of those reviews coming up on this episode, episode 249 of Seeing and Believing. If you think if you think about Heracles, he was someone. Heracles, who, don't you mean Hercules? Uh, if you're if you're using the Roman name, then yes, that I would only be know him from the film. Okay, well, Heracles uh, is the Greek name for him. He murdered his wife and children. And the labors, played him the labors, in the movie. Okay, the labors of Hercules, if you like. Hercules in yes, New York was if you one of Christ- his first movies. Thank you. From a Christian perspective is basically him serving his penance. Can't even imagine Christianity yeah. forgiving a man for murdering his wife and children. Well, you're Go- quite right, too. But, well, yes, but Mr. Coogan, you're suggesting that, that the man standing before us no, today but, no, but this who is, murdered no, his wife and children no, should, be, you, should be you, forgiven? Hercules Arnold played him in Hercules in New York. Hercules in New York. It was one of my first films. One of my first... You sound a bit like... Uh, Werner Herzog there. That's right, that's what I was doing, films. I was doing Werner. I was one of my first films. It was very hard to do. I had to get Arnold Schwarzenegger to do it for me. My name is Giorgio. Everybody calls me George. Yes, listeners, it is episode 249. We're coming up on 250. I don't know if we have anything all too exciting planned, but you never know here at Seeing and Believing. Kevin, maybe we'll give some more impressions. Uh, I, for one, want to apologize for my Michael Caine impression. It was absolutely horrible. I feel like we don't need to just apologize. We need to maybe like send some some you know apology flowers or a, mm. a card of some sort to all of our listeners, just as a way to you know extend our regrets for how how terrible those were. But you know. It's only so often that a new trip movie comes out. So it just mm-hmm. we had to we had to take our shot even if we missed the target horribly. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember Kevin if we did any impressions when we reviewed the trip to Spain a couple of years ago. And if we go back to that episode, I wonder if Michael Caine made an appearance. I bet he did. <laughs> You know, I would not be at all surprised, just based on how our impressions went just now, I wouldn't be surprised if we went back to that earlier episode and our Michael Caine impressions showed up and they were actually better than mm. whatever we just did. So, yeah, no, no, I, I totally, uh, I totally agree. We've got a great show, listeners. I'm really excited to talk about Andrew Ahn's Driveways. We're going to be talking about his film a little bit later in the show. But for now, the trip to Greece, the fourth film, and the foodie-centric journeys of Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan, follows the two comics as they play hyper-exaggerated versions of themselves as they skirt around from one delectable cuisine to another. After excursions to England, Italy, and Spain, this installment, the fourth installment, sees the duo travel from Troy to Ithaca as they follow in the footsteps of the Odyssey. Directed by veteran Michael Winterbottom, the result is a funny and emotional journey through a series of celebrity impressions and even a midlife crisis or two. Kevin, with the series now, as I mentioned in its fourth film, some will likely find Rob and Steve's shtick a little stale by now. In other words, what additional celebrity impressions could warrant another movie? Other viewers, though, 
will find the trip to Greece as fresh as ever, a sizzling delight of candor and humanity. Kevin, my question to get us started is, where do you fall on this scale? The trip to Greece, leftovers, or a Michelin star meal? Well, it's interesting that you you brought up the concern that some viewers on this fourth go-round might be finding the overall template, I guess, for these movies, for lack of a better term, to be wearing a little bit thin. You know, these two friends, they got got a little bit of a healthy ego on both of them. They, they travel around, they eat fantastic food, they do celebrity impressions, they make some jokes, and, you know, that's kind of the way these films go. And that was kind of my reaction to the previous entry, the trip to Spain, I, I enjoyed. I mean, all of these movies, I think, are at least enjoyable on a superficial level, if if nothing else. The impressions are funny, the food looks delicious, the locales that they visit are absolutely, you know, gorgeous on on screen. But there was something about this trip to Spain where I kind of, I did find the the impressions, the constant need for both of these men to perform for for each other and for whoever their presumed audience is, I found that to kind of get a little bit grating after after a third movie. It just didn't seem like Winterbottom and his stars had found a way to iterate on the formula enough to really find something interesting in there. Which isn't to say that there wasn't anything of interest there. It was just overall, the film just kind of left me with a feeling like, I feel like this f- series has done everything that can really do with this format. But I'm happy to say that I'm I'm wrong. I think the trip to Greece, you know, obviously it returns to that format somewhat, but I do think that Winterbottom kind of begins to leave that some of the familiar formulaic elements of the series behind and kind of strikes out into some new stylistic territory. Maybe not new thematic territory. These are still the the same two guys. They're still a little bit anxious about their careers, about the fact that they're aging, about the fact that you know, they their their bodies are aging and the people around them are aging. So that's still present. But I found that in this installment, Winterbottom really found a way to bring that home in in a way that felt felt very fresh. It felt like a a big step forward for the series. And honestly, it did seem like maybe Winterbottom and his stars themselves are getting a little bit tired of just eating food and cracking jokes. There's a lot more meat on the bones of this film. So I enjoyed it quite a bit. What about you? Yeah, so in 2017 with uh, the trip to Spain, I liked it much more than you did, and I talked about that. And I, I believe it ended the year as number like 21 on my list of, of favorite films for 2017. So I liked it quite a bit, and I felt like in that installment, the story really leaned into these characters uh, growing old and what that meant. And there's this great scene in The Trip to Spain where they go to a, a I don't even say like a dinosaur park. There are these big dinosaur statues, uh, these creatures, and they kind of walk around um, among them. And it really felt like uh, <laughs> these two guys felt <laughs> these, they were, they were, feeling like dinosaurs uh, at the same time there's this sense that uh, these ancient beings existed a long time ago and and maybe they were going to go to the path of of the dinosaurs i think this film sort of continues that theme of of what it means to grow older uh, but also there's this this new wrinkle what does it mean for the people around us to also grow older and our relation to them I don't know if I like this one better than the trip to Spain, but I think that the back half of this movie is probably one of the better sections of any of these, you know, the trip films. I, I think that it's just emotionally affecting. The, I don't know if you say issue for me. Uh, the problem for me with this movie is I, I thought the first 45 minutes were a little stale. We kind of jump into the scene they're already on their trip. Uh, they're not kind of getting ready to go. They are there. It's it's Monday. They're in Turkey starting this journey. And I 
wasn't too keen on some of the conversations. They were okay, humorous, not as funny as the other movies. But then the film just really seems to find its groove. And I, I think you nail it, Kevin, when you say that Winterbottom and Coogan and Bryden, they they tend to move in a different direction. And so it feels like there are less impressions here, maybe, than other installments. But there also feels like, especially in the back half, there are meatier conversations. And I really felt to that. And I, yeah, I like this installment a lot. I will give you that, that this is maybe the the least purely entertaining of, of the trip movies. It's it's not as funny. There are there aren't as many times where I, you know, just had a really big belly laugh over the course of this film uh, as compared to the previous installments. There were, there were all all three of those previous films. I kind of there was at least one moment where I just burst out laughing just because the the impressions were so good or they captured just a, a, a certain moment that was just really delightful and and hilarious and those moments are in shorter supply in this film so when i when i finished this film i didn't feel as if i'd really laughed as much or had as entertaining of a time as I had with previous films, but I think that what we got in its place was overall, for me, a a richer and more satisfying um, portrait of these these two men, or at least the versions of themselves that they're playing, in a way that I found really compelling. I think that the setting of Greece, Winterbottom's strategy, is to kind of take that retracing of Odysseus's steps, the that kind of overall through line for the film, and really find a way to infuse this lark of a story about two friends kind of enjoying beautiful Europe and eating wonderful food and having fun in each other's company. Um, he finds a way to overlay that onto some really sturdy ancient uh story tropes just the the setting of greece with its legacy of mythology and and drama and epics i think makes for a really interesting counterpoint to what has kind of always been more of a a film series on the fluffy side of things so really by combining those two it throws what the series has been doing all along into even sharper relief in a way that I found really compelling. The the scene where, for instance, Coogan and Bryden are on this this uh, boat trip. They're they're in kind of a a, a canoe or a, a gondola almost, uh, going through these caves that the ancient Greeks believed were the passages that led to the underworld, and they're kind of you know, surrounded by cave walls on every side and they're, you know, jokingly engaging in Gregorian chants and, and kind of like almost whistling in the dark a little bit. Like they, they are kind of a little bit spooked by their surroundings and by the way that's making them think about their own mortality. And so they kind of make a joke of it. But that kind of somberness is still present in a much stronger way than it was in the previous three films. And I think that's to this film's credit. Yeah, and I, I think that the movie has the visuals to kind of back up all of these ideas. So you talked about the rich history of Greece and Greek mythology and kind of what that means for the characters. And I mentioned this with the previous installment, but the same is true here. There are these wide shots of the scenery and it definitely invokes this this awe at, at the beauty, the beauty of the countryside. Uh, but we do also get this sense that the characters within the scenes are are very small. Uh, there are times when the car almost looks like a like a matchbox rolling through the hills. There are these uh, you could call them, we call them God's eye view shots. Uh, these characters from above. And you think about Greek mythology and the idea of the afterlife and um, this non-physical afterlife, the soul kind of lives on, the body uh, dies. And so when you imagine all of this, it's kind of swirling all about in these caves and 
in these monuments and in these uh, historical places that the characters visit. Uh, and then you, you watch these characters kind of swimming and moving and talking about growing old. Uh, the sense of, you know, where, where does our physicality interact with the afterlife or what is coming next? And there's this great shot from above these characters as the two are swimming in the water. And it's, it's really quite poetic. And we've been able to watch these characters. Uh, I believe they were early 40s or so when, when the series began. Uh, we're watching these characters kind of age over time. And so we get to see that progression. We get to see them talk about that and then see them try to do the things physically that they once were able to do, uh, swim long distances and uh, even kind of joke about uh, having races with one another. And it all kind of creates this environment where, yeah, we're talking about growing old and we're talking about what that means and also what it means for the people around us. And Steve Coogan, his character has um, a... I guess you could say a, a difficult problem in the back of his mind the entire trip, and it's kind of gnawing at him. It's kind of hovering above him. There's this presence, this issue, and it definitely lends itself to, as I mentioned, the the visuals and the conversations that these characters have. And Winterbottom finds some uh, pretty stylistically adventurous ways, at least in the context of the series, to really represent that. There are a couple of dream sequences that are sprinkled throughout the film, uh, Coogan's dreams specifically. And the way that Winterbottom shoots them immediately puts you in mind of Bergman films like Wild Strawberries and The Seventh Seal. Yeah. And I, I think that I, I, found, I was really appreciative of those moments because it, it, Added a little bit of of spice, if I can, you know, maybe make a little bit of a pun in this food centric series. Yeah. <laughs> to what I, I found enjoyable, but there wasn't really a whole lot of visual interest in the previous films beyond the basic fact that they're in these gorgeous locations and they're shot gorgeously. But it, it there there wasn't really a whole lot that Winterbottom was doing with. Uh, his filmmaking or his camera placement that really made me sit up and take notice. And I did that with this film, and that's down again to Winterbottom really seeming like he wants to push these versions of Coogan and Bryden in new directions and to really not just kind of playfully tweak them a little bit in terms of, you know, kind of portraying their ego and their vanity uh, to their detriment a little bit, but also to, to really dig under the surface of what that ego and vanity really signifies and really means. And I think that for this film really clarified something about the trip series as a whole, which is that one reason why we kind of get the, the, uh, the anxiety about death and aging hovering off screen for so much of the runtime of these films is that Coogan and Bryden are so... They're, they're always performing. They're always on. They always kind of want to be in the spotlight. And there's a certain self-regard to, to that. And whether or not that's a healthy self-regard is debatable. But the fact is that when, when that kind of, when the self is so important to a person, death acquires maybe a more uh, oppressive edge because that's not just the death then represents not just the the end of your life, but also maybe the end of something that you really, really value highly and love. And I think that Winterbottom's ability to draw out that little nuance in what's a pretty universal human anxiety makes this a really compelling film for me. It's essentially about how the anxiety about death for performers like Coogan and Bryden is maybe slightly different than, you know, just run-of-the-mill garden variety anxiety about death. And I thought I found that very compelling to think about. And I think the fact that it's set in the birthplace of modern drama gave it a little bit of a frisson that that made it all the more compelling. Yeah, and it it's great to watch these characters because 
they are somewhat famous, but not, I, I would say, uh, extremely famous. And they although Coogan does have seven BAFTAs, <laughs> we hear again and again, <laughs> right? He, he was in Stan and Ollie, uh, and it, it's it's great to see these two individuals who are very much concerned with their career and they're concerned with their ego, as you mentioned. And, and yet, because they are both famous, they can give each other a hard time. And so you get the sense that they do irritate each other, but they enjoy being together because they can be real with one another, if that makes sense. They can, um, they're, they don't have to worry about someone just being nice to them because they are a famous person. And it's fun to watch them mess with each other and to make fun of each other and to talk about the, you know, the other one's work. And it's great to see that kind of in the backdrop of, of Greece and of this terrain. These characters, while they do have fame, they also feel like just actors extras in the background of history and that it's sort of moving along and eventually they will be gone and perhaps they'll be remembered in some way but they're not going to be remembered like many of the people they talk about in this movie and some of the historical figures in ancient Greece and so that brings this new wrinkle to what it means to to grow old and to move forward in life and to see what happens to your reputation and your career in the future. And so that's that's a lot of fun to watch these characters kind of converse about that and talk about that. And two, there's, there's something about this series. Uh, I was thinking about it today. Normally when, when you watch a film like this or any film in the trip series, uh, you, you know, you have these characters and they express these hesitations about life uh, even these regrets about life. And I think Coogan probably expresses more regret throughout this series than, than Bryden. Uh, you kind of expect these characters to learn from their mistakes and to move forward. And watching these characters grow and not grow over four films emphasizes just how hard it is to change. You have characters who express regret and... It's almost like they didn't do anything about it in between these these quote unquote trips and how just how stifling life can be in the busyness of life. And yet the beauty of a trip like this is it encourages them to slow down. They just sit in the car and they talk. They eat a meal slowly and they talk. And that's what brings out all of these emotions and all of these ideas and all of these thoughts. And you almost get the sense, especially with Coogan, that he keeps himself busy because he doesn't want to think about the past. And there's beauty in a trip like this, but it's also kind of scary for him too. Coogan may not want to think about the past. He might not want to think about the present or the future either. Mm -hmm. you, yeah. you do get the sense that one of the reasons why these these two men kind of keep coming back together to go on these excursions is they, they almost need each other because they know that like they, they need to perform in order to kind of avoid thinking about the fact that, you know, essentially avoid the memento mori, right? Remember that you will die. They, they kind of want to not remember that. And in the other person, they find somebody who will always like listen, you know, watch them perform and then perform for them. So it's, it's almost like they're, they're in this uh, symbiotic relationship where they each provides what the other really needs in a unique way that they don't really find somewhere else. I also think it's really interesting that you bring up the fact that they don't really seem to change over the course of these films. And that was something that I noticed as well. And it made me think about another series where we see characters grow old together. And uh, it's the Richard Linklater Before trilogy. In those films, we, we see uh, Celine and Jesse meet and fall in love and kind of over the years, we return to them again and again, and part of the pleasure of those films is seeing how the actors have aged and how the characters have aged, and how in those intervening years, 
they they're not they haven't stopped being themselves, but they have changed into different people. And that's something that is really just inherently compelling to watch. Linklater kind of enjoys playing with time in that way with cinema. In these films, it's almost like the inverse of that, where we're returning to these characters over and over and over. There is kind of a romance going on, except they're in love with themselves instead of with each other. And they don't really change, though. The the passage of time, they're faces get a, a little bit more lined, their hair gets a little bit grayer, but they're still kind of doing the same impressions, cracking the same jokes, uh, kind of needling each other about their careers in the same way, and nothing ever really changes. And Winterbottom, I think, with this film shows that he's very cognizant of the fact and how he uses, he, he comments essentially on his own film's formula by by making that formula part of the thematic thrust of the film, which I think is really interesting. It is, and uh, I'll go back to the end. I won't spoil it, but uh, their parting when they do eventually say goodbye and the trip is over uh, is, is pretty emotional, kind of how all of that happens. And I think the film also does a good job of contrasting what happens after they leave and both of these characters and where they are. And there's also this fragile nature that one of them is not in a great place and the other one seems to be in a pretty good place. But we get the sense after watching four films that this could easily change over time. It could easily change, uh, it could change very quickly. And so I, I think there's a lot of meaning and depth to these films. And I, I'm glad to see uh, this one definitely um, take that and kind of move it forward. I've heard rumors, Kevin, that this is the the last one in the series. I I don't think it will be though. Maybe we won't get them as frequent as we've gotten them so far. But I, I think there's going to be more in the future. We might have to wait five years or ten years. But these characters are just kind of destined to go on on another trip. One thing that's interesting is that each each of these films kind of ends on a on a a note with the characters almost feeling like they're being born into the future almost against their will. The final shot of this film is Coogan sitting in a in a taxi and we, he's shot in profile so we see his see uh, behind his head we see the uh, the the passenger window and we see the uh, the scenery just rushing by him and he's got kind of this almost deer in the headlights reaction like he's not sure where he's going he's not sure what's coming but he's being born forward anyway, and the scenery is just rushing past him so fast it's it's a blur. And that's a little bit reminiscent of the end of the trip to Spain, where Coogan also finds himself kind of in this place of uncertainty where he's looking down the road and something's coming, and he's not sure exactly what that something is. And then the film just ends. And I think Winterbottom really does kind of do a great job with these endings of suggesting that, you know, whether or not a new trip movie is in the cards, these characters are moving forward into the future and they can't stop it. Just like none of us can can really know what's coming ahead. We just have to be born forward into the future and, and see what's what's in store. So I, I think that's a really interesting way to to put a capper on the series, if this is the end of the series. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it I think it would end just fine the way it is, but I don't know. These characters seem to to want to say more. They want to say more about themselves. So uh let's let's keep them talking. <laughs> Listeners, that is our review of the trip to Greece. It's currently playing. You can rent it across a number of different platforms, whether that's iTunes or YouTube. If you've seen the film, make sure to let us know what you think. You can tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about driveways. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it. A, a great little gem, Kevin. We're going to be talking about that film. So uh, <laughs> make sure to stay tuned for our review coming up here in just a few moments. Autumn days coming like a breeze. I wanna feel your 
That song is Autumn Days by Subway Garage. You know, Kevin, we really appreciate all of our Patreon supporters helping us to keep the podcast going. And if you are interested, listeners, in supporting us via our Patreon campaign, you can hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. We have a lot of great donation levels and one of our favorites is the what can you buy for five dollar level kevin that leads me to a very interesting question i know you're unprepared but i'll ask it anyway (laughs) what could you buy for five bucks five bucks would get you a a miniature obstacle course for the squirrels in your backyard i actually recently saw a youtube video where uh, some guy was just bored because of the quarantine, and he noticed some squirrels were stealing food out of his bird feeder, so he decided to make a little obstacle course for him. It looked like a lot of fun, and it was it was fun to watch the, the squirrels come to terms with the new normal in, in their territory. <laughs> That's wonderful. I I have not watched the video. I've seen... I've seen people post the link, but I need to go back and do that. And for five bucks, that's a steal, uh, and it will give you hours of entertainment. So, oh yeah, pretty pretty wonderful. If you would like to put five bucks toward our Patreon campaign every month, we would greatly appreciate it. Once again, you can hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Like we mentioned, it helps keep the show going. And every dollar is uh, something we are extremely grateful for. So thank you to all our listeners who support us via our Patreon campaign. And uh, we look forward to many more shows in the future. Yeah, uh, speaking of, of which, another way that uh, you listeners can can help support the show is by giving us some feedback. So you probably have noticed that over the last couple of months, we've tried some new things with the, the podcast. We've done some some retrospectives. We've done some, some marathons. We've experimented with uh, different episode lengths. And we're really curious to know, uh, you know what worked for you, what didn't work for you, and kind of Get, get an idea of, in the brave new world of coronavirus, if, if things change somehow or if we just decide to change things up, uh, what you guys like hearing in your podcast feeds every week. So to that end, we're going to be putting together a little survey, listener survey for you guys to uh, to fill out at your leisure. Let us know some of your thoughts about these things. Uh, keep an eye peeled for that. We'll obviously be putting that up on our Twitter and our Patreon page, um, but pretty much anywhere where we promote the show, we're going to try to work that link in somehow. So keep, an, keep your eyes peeled for that and definitely take a few minutes to fill out that survey when it arrives because you help us make the show better and we want to make sure we're producing good content for you guys. So thanks in advance. Yeah, I'm really interested in kind of seeing the results for that and um, it's going to be a lot of fun. And as you mentioned, it's going to help us as we continue to improve the show. Kevin, we also appreciate people who offer us feedback on our podcast episodes and i really love uh, people who listen to a podcast and they say oh they talked about a film that i have not seen yet and i need to check it out and then they they send us uh, what they thought about the movie and i just i love it because uh, not only do we get to talk about films but hopefully uh, we can inspire people to look for other films uh, that are high quality, great movies uh, that they have not seen before. And we did get an email uh, just here recently about a film we talked about in our South Korean marathon, uh, which was back in end of March, beginning of April. Yeah, so the the last film in that, that marathon uh, was... Uh, Secret Sunshine, a movie that you and I both liked quite a bit. And we got an email from Adam Peterson. Adam's been a longtime listener for us, and he wrote in about catching up with that film. He says, Hey guys, I've been catching up on the pod. New Baby proves even more disruptive to your routines than coronavirus. And finally got around to your Secret Sunshine episode. I watched this movie last year and found the sympathetic portrayal of Christians really refreshing. They all seemed like real people and not caricatures. I found Shin A's struggle with God's grace to be really powerful. To me, it seemed like she was struggling with the ugly side of God's grace, that it is open to people who have done truly wicked things in addition to being open to ourselves. 
He goes on to say, What's interesting is I followed this film up with The Dardens, The Kid with a Bike, which read as a struggle with the beautiful side of grace, that in spite of everything I've done, God's grace is open to me, just like it was to the boy Cyril. Maybe I'm reading too much into one or the other, but pairing them together produced a really poignant effect on me and forced me to wrestle with grace in a way that I hadn't before. Looking forward to catching up more. Please keep up the good work, Adam. Thanks so much for that email, Adam, and I don't think that you are reading too much into either of those films. Those were really good thoughts and provide two good reasons uh, why I really like them. I do think that they both provide really interesting, compelling portraits of grace and what it actually means. So you, I think you're right on the money and it's great to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I really love that comparison and uh, just a great double header, those two films, The Kid with the Bike and Secret Sunshine. Listeners, as we mentioned earlier, make sure to tweet us your thoughts at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Why is your shirt all wet? Cody. Um, an army guy is in the front. What army guy? An old man on the porch. Did he talk to you? Hi there. Hi. I'm Kathy. April, who lived here, was my sister. Okay. Is my son bothering you? No. Did you spray water on him? No. Well, he's not supposed to talk to strangers, so... Good idea. We're back with the second half of the show, a a second half that has been sometimes missing in action over the last few (laughs) weeks, but it's coming back with a vengeance this time around. And uh, we're not going to introduce this segment the way we did the first segment, Wade, which was with terrible celebrity impressions. I just feel like that's in our past. We're we're on to, to more quieter, more mature fare. <laughs> per usual, Kevin, per usual. <laughs> per usual. I'm just let me, let me put my monocle in my eye here before we uh, get started here. We, <laughs> we are going to be talking about a new film from uh, director Andrew Ahn. This film has been getting uh, some attention in critical circles as well as at film festivals. It just recently uh, was released on Video On Demand so that we can all watch it from the comfort of our own homes. That film is titled Driveways, and this is a film that actually had its profile boosted in part because of the recent sad passing of the great actor Brian Dennehy featured here in one of his final roles as Dell, an elderly war veteran and next-door neighbor for the protagonists of the story. Those protagonists are Cody, a sensitive young boy, and his single mother Kathy, played by Hong Chow, who may be most recognizable to listeners for her role as Lady True in last year's HBO miniseries Watchmen. Kathy's sister, Cody's aunt, has just died, and they arrive in her suburban town to clean out her house and figure out their next steps. Cody befriends Dell, and what unfolds after that is a quiet tale about unlikely companions and complex people all living side by side with one another. So Wade, you did tip your hand at the end of the previous segment that you think really highly of this film. So let's uh, just jump into the discussion. I want to to hear uh, what you found so compelling about this film. Yeah, no, it's, it's great because I, I didn't even have this film on my radar until you mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, and you're like, hey, I've heard some great things. And uh, you mentioned Adenahi and that it was a performance, uh, one of his last performances, and that you had seen him, I believe, on the stage, correct? Yeah, that's that's right. I had a chance to see him in the Eugene O'Neill play Desire Under the Elms. And I, I had never really thought of him as anything but a screen actor, but... He was a force on stage. Mm. It, it's difficult to describe just what a presence he was. So yeah. we definitely lost a, a giant. Yeah, and so you were you were talking about his performance in that uh, in that play, and so watch it. It was just kind of just kind of blown away. And I don't want to 
I don't want to make this sound like it was one of those movies that wants to blow you away. It is a quiet, meditative picture uh, that kind of snowballs emotionally to a really a great final scene. I, I think this is a movie about a lot of different things. It's a film about grief. Uh, it's also a film about vulnerability and isolation and loneliness and who we choose to open ourselves up to. And what I appreciate about this movie is even though I like Clint Eastwood's Gran Torino, uh, it's a bit well-worn in terms of its plot. So you've got this uh, crusty elderly gentleman who uh, eventually over time learns to care for one of his neighbors. Uh, this movie goes about the that story in a different way. Uh, you've got Dennehy, and he is not a grumpy elderly gentleman. He's just quiet and he keeps to himself and over time a friendship is crafted uh, with his next door neighbors uh, temporary next door neighbors in particular uh, Cody and I just love to see that unfold and to slowly grow in a pre I think it was a fairly natural way and you know, if we if we stop and think about this is a film about what it means to be someone's neighbor. Who is, you know, who is my neighbor and what can we learn from our neighbors and how can we care for them and how can we, we give to them? And I think Driveways is just a really good film. And I, ho I hope people don't sleep on it because I, I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, that's a really good uh, articulation of this film's strengths. Uh, I, I liked this film uh, quite a bit too, although not not maybe as as much as you, but there's a lot to like here. And it's interesting that you bring up Eastwood's Gran Torino because that was also a film that occurred to me while watching this film as a point of comparison. Uh, full disclosure, I don't like Gran Torino very much. And I think part of the reason is that it, it feels like Eastwood's uh, portrayal of the elderly neighbor in that story there's not really a whole lot of of depth to it, at least in, in my view. It feels a little bit thinly sketched. And something that Driveways does really well is this central trio, uh, Cody, his mother, and Del next door, all of them feel like there's just, there's lots of hidden depths to them that are hinted at that on as the director doesn't feel the need to really put an exclamation point on, like having one of them deliver a, a monologue about their fears or their, you know, their, their desires or what they think of their current situation. He allows their behavior to sort of hint at that askance. Uh, something I, one, one of example I'm thinking of is a, a short scene that doesn't really lead any, anywhere uh, that impacts the main narrative. Uh, it's when Cody's mother, after he goes to sleep, it's kind of late at night. She's finished uh, the work that she's been doing remotely. And she, you know, checks to make sure that Cody's asleep and is safe and everything. And then she slips out of the house and she just goes to a bar by herself just to, to have a drink, maybe f do a little bit of flirting with um, some of the men there. And, over the course of the scene, it emerges that she uh, is kind of fibbing a little bit to the people she encounters there. She's letting them understand that because she works in the medical field, that means she's she's a doctor, that she's a surgeon. And she kind of lets them have that misconception and doesn't correct them. And the scene ends. She kind of says, oh, I have surgery tomorrow. I, you know, I can't, you know, come home for a drink or anything like that. And she leaves the bar and she drives back to, to Cody. And that's the end of the scene. And I think that that's such a wonderful scene because it tells us a lot about uh, who this woman is, about kind of what she wants for her life, what maybe isn't really possible for her because of her obligations with her family, uh, both her extended family and uh, her son. And kind of the, the things that that opens up to her, but also the things that that are closed off to her because of that. And An's ability to suggest all of that with just this pretty inconsequential scene, I think, is emblematic of Driveway's strengths and uh, something that I feel like 
I don't see a whole lot of in in a lot of character-driven films like this. Yeah, I, I think it's it's also a pretty funny movie, and I'm struck in particular by by the lighting here. It's 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 moody in some sequences, uh, but the colors aren't drab. They're they're pretty rich, and I don't think there are any mind-boggling compositions. But the blocking on some of these scenes are, they're just fantastic in the way they emphasize the relationships between the characters. And we look at the editing. Characters are, are separated between shots, and then we'll get a shot of both of them together. And it just says so much about their relationships. The, the shots are they're steady, they're graceful, uh, warm, and inviting like this neighborhood should be, like neighborhoods around the world should be, a place where we find sanctuary, where we find warmth. And another aspect of this film, you you mentioned just kind of those unstated uh, storylines. One that's probably emphasized more than some of the others is the idea of memory. And there is a character in the film, a friend of Dell's, who is slowly kind of losing his memory. And on the surface, obviously, you know, that's that's emotional. But there's a scene where Dell's talking, and we'll probably go back to his great monologue. He, I mean, uh, Dennehy has this fantastic monologue at the end of the picture, which will probably end up being, you know, one of my favorite film scenes of the year. It'll probably be in the top 10. And... He talks about uh, the little things that his wife did. And we get the sense that this collective memory has been lost. And so when, when two people come together, you have uh, individuals who are good at certain things. The other person is good at something else. And together you, you form a person. You form a house. And you remember things. You help each other remember things better than you would if you were separated. And together they had this collective memory. They had this collective way of living. And, and with Dell's wife being gone, he feels as if he, a part of himself is gone. And so it's, it's more than just loneliness. And I like, I like that touch. It's more than just a, the fact that he is by himself. Uh, but instead, it literally feels like this this piece of him is gone. And he says, Dell says at one point that he doesn't really go to church anymore. Um, but his, you know, his wife was the person that uh, really pushed going to church. And so there's this spiritual loss here in his character that he feels like not only did his wife go away, but, but possibly a certain perception of God. And if you think about that and you think about the charge in Scripture uh, to love thy neighbor as yourself as sort of this fleshy version of the church, uh, you see someone who is searching for a neighbor and it's almost this spiritual quest. And we see that in Dell. We also see that in a number of characters throughout the film, Kathy and, and, and Cody. And it's really great to just see them sort of learn to live with each other and learn to help each other in in small ways, but those small ways just kind of accumulate and grow into really big moments in someone's life. And um, this is this film takes place over a short period of time, but you get the sense that especially Cody will remember this these you know these weeks, this month for the rest of his life. And I, I think that goes back to uh, the way the film is is set up and kind of structured. That is an interesting detail that you mentioned about uh, Dell talking about how his, you know, his his wife was sort of the the person who kept them going to church, and and once she passed away, he stopped going, and how that kind of led to a, a sense of of um, diminishment, uh, spiritual diminishment for him in some way. It, it's an interesting detail because the way that Dell behaves over the course of this film is actually. Um, profoundly Christ-like and really highlights something that uh, is very true about you know what it means to love and serve others and what it means to uh, you know love your neighbor 
as yourself. A lot of the times we think about, you know, that, that requires, you know, just very, you know, you know, it's, it's difficult or requires, uh, large gestures or ways that it's made explicit that yes, I, I do love you and I desire to to serve you as my neighbor. The way that uh, this film portrays that is that it's often just in in very quiet ways that are just simply kind, that aren't really meant to do much more than to show care and respect for the other person. So you mentioned uh, Dell's Dell's friend who's going through some memory loss. There's a wonderful little scene where they kind of they go to the convenience store together. They're doing some grocery shopping, and Dell's friend says that he has to he has to go use the restroom, and so he he leaves. And Dell kind of waits around for a really long time, and his friend never comes back. And later on, he finds his friend kind of just standing out in the parking lot. Uh, because he can't, can't quite remember how he got there or or what he was doing, and Dell's reaction to that is is simply to just like, hey, you wanted to go grocery shopping, even though that was what they were already doing. His friend doesn't remember. Dell just doesn't really mention it at all, and they just kind of go back inside and go on with their lives. The kindness that he shows to Kathy and Cody isn't, you know, particularly demonstrative. He just he lends them tools. He sits with Cody while Kathy is out uh, taking care of some other business, and they just sort of spend time together. And I think that maybe that's something that this film really highlights about what it means to be a neighbor, is that it's mostly just about being present with other people uh, and giving your time to them in various ways. And it's nice to see a film not feel the need to really make it something grander than that. It's just a very quiet act of presence. Yeah, well, you you mentioned something really great. Just being a good neighbor sometimes means uh, lending people tools or uh, an extension cord or even think about, you know, if I run out of something in a recipe and I call up a neighbor and say, hey, you know, do you have this? And possessions, physical possessions actually play a part in this movie so kathy goes to her sister's house and the house is uh it, it's it's just a wreck there's a, a ton of of clutter everywhere and the real estate agent she says well maybe your sister found comfort from all of these things and then later dell is faced with the decision to sell some of his wife's possessions uh, and then also for Cody, there are some individuals who give him some neighborhood kids that give him, uh, you know, these these comic books. And so we get kind of this idea that possessions can bring us comfort, but they really only bring us comfort when they're attached to certain memories or to certain people. And it's it's really this kind of fun way to go about it because I think a movie could you know, tell a story about, hey, you know, happiness doesn't come from stuff, it comes from people. Um, but this is this is just kind of a, a fascinating angle that the reason that possessions mean stuff to us usually is, is when they help protect or shelter the ones that we love, they help bring us close together, or uh, they are gifts or even memories from the people that we love and care about. And when we go past that is when we get in into the danger of, of looking for comfort in those things, and that's when we get isolated uh, from the people around us. So there's kind of a kind of a strange um, uh, or unique maybe look at how that functions within these individuals' lives and how that works. And I I, I do think there are a couple moments when the film. Uh, tries to push a little too hard when it isn't as quiet and as meditative as maybe it could be. Uh, so there's there's a scene where Cody has a party and, um, you know, for the first little while, it's as if no one shows up to his birthday party. And I think the film kind of pushes that a little too hard, and there are a couple of moments like that. Uh, but when it's just kind of quiet and reflective and natural, maybe that's a, a best a good way to say it, when it's natural and it just kind of lets... Uh, Dennehy kind of do his work and bring presence to that character. I think it really just kind of flows well. Yeah, I agree that there there are some 
um, a little bit, I, I don't know if clumsy is the right word, but maybe a little bit on the nose moments throughout this film that maybe kept me from loving it quite as much as you. And it does have to do with places where characters, some supporting characters are just kind of seem a little bit more sketched than this central trio. The central trio is just so fleshed out and interesting and handled with such subtlety and grace that, for instance, you know, the busybody neighbor who has the the horrible hellions for grandsons, you know, like that, they feel a little bit more like they're kind of placeholders rather than human beings, which is, I, I found to be a little bit disappointing in a film that otherwise did so well in um, drawing out the humanity from some of its characters. I do also think that there's a scene where uh, Dell is hanging out with some of his army buddies and uh, when one of his friends just kind of quotes from memory the the last section of the the film Thanatopsis, which is all about you know death and uh, welcoming the the end peacefully rather than raging against the dying of the light, so to speak. And that that was a scene that was good in the sense that it's a great poem. And so that, that was interesting in that sense, but it also felt a little bit like uh, Andrew on wanting to find a way to work the poem into the, the film and have that stand as a theme without really knowing how to do it organically. So there are some rough edges for sure, but it's a film that's worth watching. Definitely. Yeah, no, it, it is listeners. It's available to stream as Kevin mentioned so if you have a chance make sure to check out driveways and let us know what you think once again that's at c belief pod at c belief pod on twitter and seeing and believing capc at gmail.com kevin we've reached the end of the episode where we take an opportunity to recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners uh what do you have to recommend to them this week so I've talked before about how I really like the films from Ireland's studio Cartoon Saloon. It, it's an animation studio similar to Laika or Studio Ghibli. I really like uh, their film The Secret of Kells. I loved The Breadwinner from a couple of years back. I had not yet had a chance to catch up with their 2014 effort directed by Tom Moore titled Song of the Sea. I recently was able to rectify that and I'm really glad that I did. That's going to be my be my recommendation for this week. There's just such magic in this film, I guess. It, it's the story of a lighthouse keeper and his two children, a boy and a girl, and the girl it comes to light is is a selkie. She's she's a seal girl, and uh they've they've lost their mother, and the film is kind of about uh them trying to make peace with that loss and also with them with the two children trying to come to terms with their emotions and also kind of find their their place in the world in in kind of the this new normal and that's you know obviously kind of a very sturdy foundation to build a a family drama for for kids on but where this film goes above and beyond is in the way that it incorporates uh, classic like Celtic mythology into its story in ways that are just so compelling and really make you remember what it's like to be be a kid listening to a story for the first time and being utterly enthralled because it all seems so magical and strange and interesting. This film really has that quality in its story, and I enjoyed it so much. So def it's on Netflix, so definitely there's no good reason not to check it out if you have that streaming service. 2014 Song of the Sea is my recommendation for the week. Yeah, no, that's a really good one, and uh, I, I like it a lot. I watched that probably a couple years ago with um my, with with Weston I think he was probably 5 at the time and and he enjoyed it yeah that's a that's a great pick uh Kevin so my film is actually from 1986 and I'm going to recommend uh David Burns True Stories this is one of those movies I've been trying to get around to for a long time uh, David Byrne investigates uh, the fictitious town of Virgil Texas and 
he peers at the strange and eccentric characters, the musical characters involved as they celebrate the 150th year celebration of of Texas. And it really is, I mean, it's a funny film. This is the probably the most I've laughed at a movie in a very long time. And I, I love how Byrne... Uh, looks at these characters playfully. Uh, we laugh at these characters, but he he still finds a way to honor them and even point out how these characters, while they seem a certain way to the rest of the country, in many ways, they reflect uh, the rest of the country. John Goodman uh, plays an individual uh, named Lewis who is uh, searching for a, a wife and uh, he does a fantastic job here. Uh, it's it's really great. And uh, yeah, this is one of those movies that we, when I watched it last week, I just uh, couldn't stop talking about it and uh, singing some of the songs over and over and over again. There's there's a song that John Goodman sings at the end of this picture, and I just can't get it out of my mind it's 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 hilarious it's just great and what's funny too is david byrne talks about how this town will eventually be kind of uh uh industrialized that it's going to grow up it's going to be big there's going to be buildings and corporations and things everywhere and what's fascinating is he filmed in many of the areas where i i used to live whenever i lived in dallas and it has become that way. So it's fascinating to see him say that in 1986 and then also know physically this terrain. Oh, okay, yeah, that did happen this way. So uh, it's a great movie. I want more people to see it because I want to talk about it. It's just, uh, I just <laughs> love it. It's great. So we did that show a while back where we talked about our, our favorite hometown movies. You mentioned that this movie is set kind of in your stomping grounds. Do you think if we were to do that list today that you, that this would find its way onto your top five? Okay, so when we did that, I did, I, I tried to keep it to Houston area films. Now this this was in Dallas. So uh, if I if I could stretch it, it definitely would because it says so much about just the culture. There's a scene with a pastor kind of talking about conspiracy theories uh, via a song. At I'm telling you, it this is a, this is a really great movie. I think there are gonna be people who watch it and they're gonna be like, "That's so weird. I ju- I just don't get it." Uh, but it really clicked for me. So if we could extend my hometown movies to to the Dallas area too, because I did live there, then this would definitely be near the top. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I'll definitely have to add this to my list. I still need to get to uh, stop making sense. So oh, yeah. you know, there's a lot <laughs> to uh, uh, a lot in that area that I need to uh, rectify my my ignorance. And sounds like a huge blind spot for me. And it's crazy how. David Byrne directs one, one feature length film, and it's in my estimation. I need to watch it again, but it's it's probably a masterpiece. Like it's just it's just cr- wow. it's just crazy to me that he's like, okay, I'll do one and I'll make it incredible, and then I won't do any more. It's just wild. <laughs> that that is quite the hard sell. I'll <laughs> definitely check it out, listeners. We want to thank you so much for listening that is our show this week make sure to rate and review us on itunes we really appreciate it just search seeing and believing we're right there give us a star rating type out a review you can also subscribe to us on spotify and stitcher wherever you get your podcast this week's episode is brought to you by our patreon supporters and christandpopculture.com our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm wade bearden My co-host is Kevin McLenathan, and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.